Hi, I'm Spencer Christian. I've been a broadcast journalist and weathercaster for more than 50 years. And over those years, I've met many remarkable people. Remarkable people with remarkable insight. Now, I'll be talking with them about the issues of the day and about their personal journeys. I'll even share a few of my own. So come join me after the weather, and we'll learn together. Welcome to After the Weather. I'm your host, Spencer Christian, and uh, we have a very special episode today in recognition of Black History Month, and appropriately, a very special guest. Uh, He's a man of many talents and accomplishments, a writer, historian, journalist, lyricist, vocalist, talk show host, political campaign manager, Harvard Law School graduate, and founder of the Cole Porter Society. He is Marin County resident, Noah Griffin, Jr. Good to have you with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, I've always uh, thought of Black history as um, actually American history told in Mm -hmm. in its fullness. (laughs) And I'm just wondering what your take is on that uh, and, and why you feel Black History Month is important. Well, it goes back, you know, it's it's ironic the day that we're holding this is February 20th, 1895 was when Frederick Douglass died. And uh, he was a man who was the ultimate outsider and became the ultimate insider. Mm-hmm. He worked for eight different administrations. And coinciding with the time that he was alive, W.P. Du Bois was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868. And if you think of the span of his life, he signed my baby book, April 16th, 1946, oh and wrote, Here's Hoping. He was a very much of an admirer of my dad. But at any rate, so he was born in 1868. He writes Souls of Black Folk in 1903 in opposition to Booker T. Washington, saying that all we should do is cast down our buckets where we are and just pursue blue-collar blue pursuits. Right. Um, and then uh, he dies August 27th, 1963, the eve of the March on Washington, when the mantle is officially given to Martin Luther King. I mean, you think of that span of history. One man taking the torch from another and then moving forward like he did. It was that is incredible. And you and you have this personal connection to W.E.B. Du Bois, which is amazing to me. I, I knew that your dad was uh, a civil rights activist, but I didn't know about the connection that he had with Du Bois. Tell me about that. Well, Du Bois admired my dad because my father fought for the equalization of black and white teachers' salaries. Uh, my father taught at a host of Southern black colleges, wound up in the Florida State school system where they were paying black teachers 47% of what they were paying white teachers by law. He fought it in state court. There were only three black lawyers in the state at that time, lost. Thurgood, he had taught at Lincoln University, contacted him and said, Noah, throw it out of state court. Let's try it in federal district court under the 14th Amendment. Just to let our listeners know, you're talking about Thurgood Marshall here, who was the first black Supreme Court justice. So go ahead. Right. Named in 1967. So my dad, they they threw it out of state court, tried it under federal district court. It took them six years, but they eventually won. But my parents were barred from teaching for life in Florida. In fact, his colleague with whom he fought the action uh, was blown up uh, in his home with his wife Christmas Eve 1951. Harry Moore was his name. So daddy took a job with the NAACP at the behest of Roy Wilkins, who was then the executive secretary, saying, how would you like to set up 11 regional states out of either San Francisco or Los Angeles? So Thanksgiving Day, 1944, he moved to San Francisco and they began setting up the 11 regional states of the NAACP. Asked to do the same thing in 1955, my mother said, in Kansas, out of Kansas City, I'm not moving my kids to what was called the South then. So. He went there for a year to do that. 
came back and finished his life here wow. in San Francisco. What was your perspective on race and race relations as you were growing up, given your parents' uh, involvement in this in the richness of recent Black history in America? That's a wonderful segue. The, what got me started in my search for Black history was Alfred Sakel, T-A-S-C-A-L-E, the only Greek-American name in this phone book with that surname. And he would come to school every day and he'd say, Noah, the Greeks did this, the Greeks did that. What the Negroes ever do? <laughs> so, so I happened to mention to Aurelius Walker, who was my barber, working his way through the divinity school. He said, Mr. Griffin, if you give me a little of your allowance, I'm going to get you a set of history books. So I went down to Marcus Bookstore and got me a set of J.A. Rogers history books so I could come to school every day and said, we did this and we did that. Not that we were ever believed then because my right. did it. <laughs> but then it, it, it came about in a very interesting way. In 1965, John Hope Franklin the great historian, uh, wrote the book Land of the Free. And it was an interesting compendium of everything that Black folks had ever done, and Chinese and women, et cetera. And it was the official eighth grade book for the next two years. But the John Burt Society said that this is not the right study of history. He had oh also written from, from, written from, from slavery to freedom in 1947, mm -hmm. which was like the key text when I was a kid growing up. He was taught by T.S. Courier, my professor at Fisk University, wow. and he was graduating the class of 1935. And I didn't realize the story until after he had died. He had been accepted to Harvard and didn't have enough money after working all summer to go. T.S. Courier said, no student of mine after being accepted at Harvard will not go because of lack of funds. Marched to downtown Nashville, got him alone and sent him on to, uh, to oh, graduate school. That's amazing. And the last year of his life, uh, I was, I just suffered a stroke. He'd come to San Francisco and was supposed to uh, speak at a clean well at place for books. Amos Brown said, that's too small a venue. He needs to speak at Third Baptist Church, which he filled. Wow. I got out of my, I just had a stroke. I got out of my stroke bed because I was asked to introduce him. And I said, there's no way I'm not going to accept this honor. I was able to introduce him there. Oh, that is unbelievable. You, you know, you've made reference here to some incredible black writers and and historians uh uh scholars um and it seems that it, it saddens me that now there's an effort among many governors of red states and i'll just be frank they are republican governors of red states who seem to want to whitewash american history and get rid of certain books by african-american writers and not teach certain uh, things about the struggles in the history of African-Americans, uh, especially post-slavery. It's almost as if they want their, they want the next generation to believe that once slavery ended, everything was fine. There was no um, Jim Crow for a hundred years. There were no um, vigilantes going and burning crosses and, and, and lynching people. Uh, how do you feel about this effort to erase recent history? Well, as, as I understand it, in Germany, you cannot teach that the Holocaust did not exist. Right. We have we have never lived up to our original sin. And as a result of that, history has been written and rewritten. It was John Oliver Killens who wrote the wonderful book, And Then We Heard the Thunder, about Black participation in World War II. And he came to Fisk while I was there, and his daughter said to him one day in a speech he told us, Daddy, Daddy, how come the lions are always killed by the gladiators in the arena? And he looked at his daughter and said, it will be that way until the lions learn to write the history books. Right, exactly. Yes. And thus now, as a result of 
the Black History Movement, which was in the 60s when I was, when I came along, we we at least knowledge it and and learn about it. But those people in those red states are wanting to x out all of it because it makes those children feel uncomfortable. Well, what about children like me? Yeah, growing up, we're made to feel uncomfortable that when we read Huck Finn, although it was a great story for its time, right. Uh, and about, you know, seeing Emma Till's mother at Third Baptist Church when I was a child, oh. having that X'd out. I remember her saying, I have no more tears to shed. There was a picture of him on the outside of the program. I'll never forget that. And then he was the the 14-year-old the who was lynched, allegedly having whistled at a white woman in Mississippi. Yes. That next summer, we went from San Francisco to Florida. Through the state of Mississippi, I kept my head down under the window. Because I thought somebody might shoot at me. Yeah, I don't know anybody who went through that period of time yeah. who, who isn't traumatized yeah. by what happened then. Was no, I, I I lived during that time as well. I was born in 1947, and when uh, this horrible murder of Emmett Till took place, my parents were afraid to let my brother and me leave the house. And when we'd go out uh, shopping, you know, and into the marketplace when I when we were children in the mid to late 1950s, of course. Um, my, my parents had taught us not to even look at the white girls as they walked by because of what happened to, to Emmett Till and to many others, uh, who were just innocent, hadn't done anything wrong. Um, and, and, you know, you touched on something so important there earlier, um, in response to my question about, um, the, the teaching of history or, or the efforts to erase history. Germany does not pretend the Holocaust didn't happen. And, right. and Germans don't erect statues to honor right. uh, Nazi heroes. Why, why are so many Americans still holding on to this romanticized uh, vision of the Old South? I, I just don't understand why they can't let it go. Well, it's in, in, in a way, we won the war, but we lost the history. Yeah. And, and part of the redemptive value of, of uh, as, as White saw it, of getting together in 1877 after Reconstruction formally ended was to be able to put that race problem behind us. And it was ironic because the 1877 election, Hayes versus Tilden, resulted in an electoral tie and it went into the House of Representatives. And Hayes promised the South, if you vote for me, I will take the troops out of the South which were enforcing black voting rights. Right. And so for between 1877 in 1965, we didn't have the right to vote federally across mm -hmm. the nation. And he knew what he had done, and he felt so badly about it. Later on, he was on a national scholarship board, and he gave a scholarship to an up-and-coming young Black scholar so he could study in Germany. That Black scholar was W.B. Du Bois. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, my gosh. That is... You know, I, I read uh, the, the Souls of Black Folk. His, well, you said it was published in 1903, right? 1903, yes. I, I read that my freshman year in college, and it just gave me a whole different view of, of the world uh, that I had not, that, that no other work of literature had introduced me to. <laughs> it was astounding back then, because in the 1895, you had the uh, Cotton States Exposition, and Booker T. Washington spoke. And he says, as all things uh, social, we can be as separate as the five fingers, but united as the fist in all things to our mutual progress. Right. And that was the first time an African-American speech had been printed in whole in a newspaper because it reflected what the people in the Times thought. 
you know, only give black folks a certain level of education. Let them be blue collar workers. Don't let them pursue an intellectual and academic degree. And Booker T. Washington's wife and all of his daughters went to Fisk University where they pursued an intellectual <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. What uh, well, I don't think it was an either or. I think it would it should have been a both and. We should yes. be pursuing both blue collar education and also a white collar education too. Yeah, good point. Both and. What did you? What lessons did you teach your kids uh, when they were growing up about about race and about Black history and about uh, their place in the world? Well, I think they knew what their grandfather had done. They knew the issues I had fought for. My conversation with them about race was very, very short. I just said to them, basically, the reason you live where you live, you go to the school that you go to, you're able to take a book out of a library, you're able to drink from a water fountain. Somebody paid a price for you, and you're going to have to pay a price for somebody else. Each generation's ceiling is the next generation's floor. And because I didn't want them to look at themselves as limited in any way about what they were capable of doing, what they're able to do, I didn't want them to burden them. I didn't want to burden them with all of their grandfather had gone through, all that I had gone through. I remember when folks came to the dinner table who talked about what my father had done. And if they got too specific, the time he was pistol with bringing a group of students to participate in a picnic at the beach where he was given a permit, he'd give them a stern look and they wouldn't say anything. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until after he had actually died, I realized all the danger he was under. I did the McNeil Lair News Hours, the first San Francisco journalist to be on the News Hour. And I did it at the nomination of Clarence Thomas. And uh, that I thought to myself, I may not be on the show again, but I'm going to say exactly what I think. And for him to have taken the place of Thurgood Marshall, yeah. who won 29 of 32 cases before the Supreme Court, nine out of 14 as Solicitor General, and never once reversed on the Second Circuit. Here's a pioneer for somebody to have taken his place that didn't reflect the true views right. of progress of what African-Americans should be going, where they should be going and could be going and ought to be going, was a travesty to me. Yeah. Um, it's, so that's... I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I... I I wonder what gives you hope when you're talking about race and, and race relations. What gives you hope for the future? And before you answer that, I'll tell you why I asked that question. Mm -hmm. During the first two or three decades after all the civil rights legislation of the mid-60s, I felt very hopeful. Uh, you know, I grew up in the old Jim Crow South, and, and I could see, oh, well, there was, of course, resistance to the change that was taking place. But it seemed to me that more people were accepting that we were desegregating the schools and places of public accommodation, and we were going to expand economic and academic uh, opportunities for, for non-whites. Uh, it, it seemed that the whole society was moving, though slowly, in the right direction. And I, I feel that in the last couple of decades, we are not progressing, but regressing. I just wonder what your take is on that. Well, remember the opening lines of uh, Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst yeah. of times. Yeah, that's right. Here we have an African-American female vice president, mm -hmm. an ambassador to the United Nations, uh, a, a female black uh, Supreme Court justice, mm -hmm. a press secretary to the uh, president of the United States. Um, yet at the same time, we have what you talk about at the red states where they want to regress and they don't want to 
renew the Voting Rights Act at the Supreme Court level. Uh, so you, you have these movements forward and yet you have these movements backwards. It's almost as if we don't appreciate the fact that human nature is almost the same. It's interesting, we, because we've moved forward technologically, we think human nature has moved forward at the same time. And it's yeah. not. One of my favorite lines is from the African Queen where Bogart works, wakes up from a stupor and Catherine Hepburn is throwing out all of his Gordon's gin. And he says, Rosie, Rosie, it's only human nature to take a drink every now and then. And he says to her, Mr. Allnut, Mr. Human, human nature is what we're put in this world to rise above. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> and so we continually have the struggle to rise above human nature. Yes. Who wouldn't want to see the world the way they see it and just yeah. dictate other people? You have to see it the way I see it. Right. But each generation has to fight that battle. Each yeah. generation has to fight it. It's never permanently won. Yeah, that, that is true. And yet you, we remain hopeful that we will achieve small victories. That we shall overcome. I still remember 1965 seeing Lyndon Johnson before a joint session of Congress look, look and say, we shall overcome. Yeah. And I asked Linda Bird Johnson, what was your father thinking when he said that, knowing he would lose the South for a generation, maybe more after yeah. having said that? Yes. He said, she said, you know, that old hymn, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. And I thought and I said, you know, there were all these wonderful biographies of your dad. What would you recommend? She said, they're all pretty good, but nobody wants to read anything bad about their father. But he's probably the greatest civil rights president ever. The, oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, Without question. Had voting it rights been... Act. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. The voting Rights Act, the yeah. Housing Rights Act, mm -hmm. the civil right, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right. Uh, the appointment of Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme yes, Court. absolutely. Uh, the, the Great Society programs. Uh, yeah, it, had it not been for the war in Vietnam, uh, as a friend of mine often says, uh, Lyndon Johnson would have made people forget about Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> that's how great a domestic Ooh, president what a was. great line. Yeah. And that's true. Oh, you know who said that? John no. Burton. John Burton. Johnny. Uh, yes, Johnny's a friend of mine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we my. get together regularly, and he, he always says that about Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Uh, for, for our listeners, uh, John Burton is a, a former a congressman from the Bay Area, a, a state um, um, state senator, a chairman of the of the Democratic Party. He's a huge figure in Democratic politics in California. So that's the man we're talking about, John Burton, who, by the way, is now 90 years old. <laughs> yes. And his brother, Phil, was one vote away from being speaker and just a dynamic uh, presence in the House. He was so brilliant. He could take 435 napkins, if asked, and, and give you a map of every single district in the country and the, the pluses and the minuses of Democrats versus the Republicans in that district. The oh guy was just brilliant. He, he was indeed. I didn't know Phil, but I've read a lot about him. And obviously, my, with my friendship, uh, through my friendship with John, I've heard many, many stories about, about Philip. Um, I, I, your, your hopeful approach to life inspires me. <laughs> uh, no, I just want you to know it's such a, a pleasure to have you here to talk about th these subjects uh, related to, to Black History Month. But I, I want to ask you about a couple other things about your personal life. I know that you're you're still singing, right? Aren't you at public venues? I am. As a matter of fact, tomorrow night I'll be singing at the Mill Valley Community Center with a 17-piece big band, uh, wow. which we do every other month, which is a lot of fun. Actually, the, the highlight of my career, in a way, was uh, the 100th anniversary of Sinatra's uh, birth was celebrated venues that were too small. And I thought, why don't we take a big venue? It deserves it. 
Yeah. And so we rented the uh, Herbst Theater, not thinking that the Herbst Theater had gone from 600 to 1,000 seats when they renovated. <laughs> what can we do? Well, we had the 70-piece orchestra. Uh, we replicated his uh, concert with uh, Count Basie at the Sands. We found an old recording of Sinatra's asking, you know, how do you want to be remembered? Will, with, he did it with Willie B. Williams, somebody that should be yeah, familiar yes. with you. Oh, yes. In New York. Um, and it was just fabulous. And I just wanted people to know that just because you're African-American doesn't mean that you just have to stay in that that little genre. Right. We can celebrate anybody and everything. And Sinatra just means as much to me as it does to anybody else. Right. And we sold it out. It was a wonderful occasion. You know, one of the greatest uh, musical performances I've ever seen was in 1980 at Radio City Music Hall. It was Sinatra along with Sarah Vaughan backed up by the Count Basie Orchestra. Oh my! <laughs> does it get it? Does it get any better than that? Does no, it, it get doesn't. any better? <laughs> you know who got him? St- you know he couldn't get arrested in the early fifties before from here to eternity. And uh, it was Nat King Cole that that, that uh, called up the head of Capitol Records and says, "said You got to hire this guy. His best years are in front of him." Wow! And that got him wow. into Capitol Records and helped move his career along. That so it was Nat Cole. I did not know that story. That's an amazing story. Now, tell me about the uh, Cole Porter Society. Why did you um, develop or found that? Well, when I was in uh, college, I thought I wanted to be a singer. So I majored in music the first two years. The honors professor under whom I studied said, Noah, you can't get a degree in music from Fisk and sign a contract at Columbia Records. Why don't you major in something else and minor in music? So that's what I did. And by the time I was graduating, I was 20 years old and I thought, well, maybe I want to go on and pursue some academics here and just keep singing on the side. So I went on to Harvard Law. And while I was there, I still had the music bug and the dean sent me down to Cole Porter, who just died's law firm. And they said, well, you know, here you are. Uh, you might want to come back to us at some point. So I spent the next 45 years in government, politics and media. So when I retired from that, I thought, well, my first concert was a Cole Porter tribute, and it sold out. And we thought, well, let's join the Cole Porter Society. Well, there was none. So I called the successor to the man I had spoken with some 45 years later, and he called the collateral part of Cole's family. And they said, why don't you go ahead and do it? So we formed the Cole Porter Society, and I've been singing with him ever since. And it's been a lot of fun. And so now anything goes, as Cole might say. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, for our listeners, once again, we are both uh, graduates of HBCUs. You are a Fisk yeah. University man. Um, and I went to what used to be Hampton Institute, but is now Hampton University. So I think it's only fitting that the two of us would have a conversation about the Black experience during Black History Month. And I wish you all the best, my friend. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, you're listening to After the Weather. I'm your host, Spencer Christian. We'll catch you next time. After the Weather was edited by Leonard Torres. Our executive producer is Marcus Young. This podcast is a product of ABC7 News. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and leave us a like if you liked this episode. I'll talk to you later. Take care and so long for now.